Chapter 7 of The Key to the Riddle, A Story of Huguenot Days, by Margaret S. Comrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Little Man Christoph. The winter of 1686 proved a severe one in Piedmont, but for the two Montu it passed more happily than at one time they could have believed possible. True, no tidings had yet reached them of their missing dear ones. Jules Bursou had not returned in fulfillment of his promise. Nevertheless, Azarel had never given up hope. "'I feel sure they are alive, and that we shall all meet again one day,' she would say to Léon, with unwearying persistency. "'And it is just because Jules has not come that I am hopeful. Even were it that he had not but evil tidings to bring, he would not have forsaken us all these long months. Some ill fortune hath befallen him, but for that we should have had news.' As for Léon, despite the doubts that would at times assail him, he could not help being infected by his sister's unwavering confidence, and the two, sustained by a hope which they believed was God-given, lived on in a spirit of waiting expectancy. There were times, no doubt, when that very hope of theirs made them chafe impatiently against the bonds that bound them to the land of their exile, but those attacks of homesick longings were happily less unbearable than they once had been, and to both there had come a restfulness which, if it was not absolute happiness, assuredly was a full appreciation of the many blessings of their present lot. Not unnaturally, this contentment was in a great measure brought about by the sense that their services were valued in their respective homes. In the absence of Michel Roussier, Léon had become almost like a son of the house at Malinot. Monsieur Broussel and his gentle wife made no secret of the comfort the young Vaudois was proving himself to be, while his influence for good among the servants and peasants about the farms was one that the master felt more than thankful for. At Castelbrianza also things had changed, and that for the better. Azarel was no longer afraid of Madame Eloise, for although to all outward seeming Madame's manner to Christophe's governess was but little altered from its habitual cold impassiveness, there was a tacit understanding of friendship between them which was very comforting to the girl. And now and again when the two were alone together, the mistress of Castelbrianza, laying aside her proud reserve, would treat her young dependent with a kind considerateness which told of growing confidence, if not even of real affection, on her part. Occasionally, when Azarel was seized with a restless fit, she would don her warm cloak and hood, and betake herself out of doors to battle with the keen, sharp wind blowing straight across the plain from the snow-covered Alps. In the very teeth of the wintry blast she would climb to the summit of a steep hill called the Col de Vaux, which lay to the northwest of the Brianza Park. On a clear day the view from this eminence was well worth the steep ascent. Far away to the west towered Mount Viso, the grim sentry of the range, his white crest glittering like a burnished helmet in the winter sunshine. To the east the great plain of Piedmont rolled onward and upward to the very horizon, while to the north, too far off to be distinctly defined even in the clear frosty air, lay the Vaudois valleys, the deep patches of white in the glens contrasting with the dark outlines of the woods and hills. But to this point in the landscape Azarel rarely trusted herself to look. She would stand for long minutes together, gazing now at the wide sweep of the undulating plain, now at the whitened peaks of the distant Alps, drinking in the wild great draughts of the intoxicating mountain air. Then, having taken her fill, she would rapidly descend the call, returning to the chateau with eyes and cheeks so brilliant that Christophe would look and look again, half envious, half admiring, while Madame de Rohan would smile and call her their wild December rose. After this, when the short afternoon light had faded and the lamps were lit, the three would gather cosily round the huge log fire in the hall, and Azarel would read aloud in her musical voice some stirring tale of olden times while Madame worked at her embroidery frame, and Christophe busied himself with his beloved wood-carving. This new interest the invalid boy owed to Léon Montu. At the beginning of the winter, Léon, to the entire satisfaction of Monsieur Broussel, had started a wood-carving class for the farm lads as a counter-attraction to the wine-taverns. 
Christophe, who had conceived an unlimited admiration for the stalwart young Vaudois, and considered whatever he did perfection, took the keenest interest in the Malino wood-carving enterprise. Discovering this, Léon good-naturedly offered to give the child lessons in the craft, with the result that the little fellow showed such a talent for the work that teaching him became a delight. And so the quiet winter passed away. With the spring came visitors to the castle. Madame de Rohan, necessarily much occupied with her guests, had less time to spare for her little ward and his governess, and seeing that she continued as rigid as ever in the persistence with which she kept the boy in the background, Azarol and Christophe were perforce left much to each other's society. It proved an eventful spring, however, for Christophe de Beauregard. By dint of long and gentle persuasion, Azarol had gained for her charge the permission that on fine days the invalid might be wheeled out in his couch, either into the sunny court or into the shady orchard, a change which afforded him, at the first at least, unalloyed delight. One lovely May morning, Léon, who had come over to see his sister and had been directed to the fig orchard by Blaise, found Christophe watching with a pathetically sad look on his pale face, while Azarol, singing snatches of songs to herself, roamed hither and thither, filling her apron with the wild flowers she and Christophe were to weave into garlands by and by. "'Eh bien, little man Christophe, your face does not catch the sunshine today. Why is that?' asked Léon kindly as he stooped over the couch. Christophe sighed. "'I will tell you, Monsieur Léon,' he said confidentially. "'You see, Mademoiselle and I, we have been praying to the good God for a very, very long time to make me grow up into a big, strong man as quick as ever he could. But,' Christophe sighed again, "'perchance it is that he is busy healing the cripples that prayed to him before I did. I do not mind the waiting so much when I am indoors, for then I can be busy learning from books, and that is making my head grow into a man's,' Mademoiselle says." But when I am out here, then I begin to want my legs and my arms to grow. I want to be truly little man Christophe and walk. He paused a moment, and Léon, to whom a certain thought had come, failed to notice the quick kindling of the blue eyes, and to hear the muttered, Certes, I know I could if they would but let me try. Some day I will. The child's defiant little threat was scarcely uttered when he felt two arms slipped under him, and almost before he knew what was happening, those same strong yet careful arms had lifted him up. Christophe's joyful shout, as Léon paced up and down with him, brought Azarol at a run from the farther end of the grove. At sight of her brother and his tiny burden she uttered a startled exclamation. "'Oh, Léon! Léon! Madame!' The young man nodded reassuringly. "'Madame will be glad.' Then, looking down at the flushed little face resting against his shoulder, he asked, "'Does it hurt you, little man, Christophe?' Speechless with excitement and delight, the child shook his head. "'That is well, for I am going to take you for a long journey.' right away through the fruit orchards and the park and the vineyards and the gardens and the stables and all round the castle policies. Christophe gave another shout of delight. "'But am I not too heavy for you, Monsieur Léon?' he asked somewhat anxiously. "'I heard how, when the barn at Malino took fire, you carried the calf that was frightened in your strong arms, but perchance I am weightier in myself, for you see the poor calf was only growing into a cow, while I am beginning, am I not, mademoiselle, to grow into a big strong man this day?' The young Vaudois laugh was answer enough, and on the three went, the unexpected appearance of the little Monsieur de Beauregard causing quite a sensation among the men and maid-servants. There were everywhere smiles of welcome, and now and again a low-spoken, "'Bless the little Monsieur!' which made Christophe feel at once shy and happy. He did not know why. "'It has been like sailing away, away in a big ship!' he cried exultantly, when Léon had brought him back to his couch in the hall, where Madame stood awaiting them with a silent stillness that made Azarol glance at her apprehensively and assuredly no Vasco da Gama could ever have given a more glowing account of his voyage of adventures than did Christophe, while with pink cheeks and voice pitched high with excitement he incoherently told his guardian of the many places to which for the first time in his life he had been, 
and of the many wonders he had seen. But still Azarol looked anxiously at Madame de Rohan. Léon had said she would be pleased. Was she so? "'Madame Eloise, are you not glad that I have seen the world?' asked the boy, missing something in his guardian's face. She bent down and kissed him. "'Yes, yes, little boy, I am glad for you, very glad.' Then, standing erect and looking at Azarel, she said slowly, "'It was a risk. Surely it was a great risk.' There was no anger in her voice. The girl felt puzzled. What then was there? Could it be there was disappointment? But turning now to Léon, Madame went on with the courtesy that never failed her. "'I am sure, monsieur, it was very kind of you, truly kind. I wish along with Christophe to thank you for all your trouble.' "'It was not trouble, madame, it was a pleasure,' returned the young man with his frank smile. "'If you will permit me, I shall come, whenever the weather is fine, and give Monsieur de Beauregard a ride in my arms.' Christophe's ecstatic shout saved Madame de Rohan from the necessity of replying further than by a graceful bow of thanks, and Léon left, well pleased with his morning's work. But the next day, to Christophe's grief, the weather broke down, and that hopelessly. For the present, at least, the cripple's further travels must be postponed. But Azarel could not rid herself of the strange impression that to his guardian this was a relief. To console the child for his disappointment, Azarel devoted herself to his amusement that evening, for even his carving failed for once to distract his thoughts. At last, when tired of games, he begged for one of the Bible stories he so delighted in. The story finished, the two were talking it over together, but in low tones in order that they might not disturb Madame, who was in the room, when Christophe suddenly cried out, "'Madame Eloise, I pray you to tell me something. Would Madame my mother have taken me to the Lord Jesus Christ if she had not died, think you?' With a quick start Madame de Rohan looked round from her seat in the window. Azarel tried to check the child, for although, strange to say, Madame had hitherto never interfered with the young Vaudois' habit of narrating to her charge stories from the Holy Scriptures, the girl had used her liberty with a caution tinged with apprehension, lest this altogether singular state of matters might through any imprudence on her part be brought to an end. But Christophe was not to be stopped. "'Mamselle has been telling me about the long, long past, when the mothers brought their little boys and girls to Christ the Saviour, Mary's blessed son. The disciples were cross. Methinks they were like Brother Toma. I misdoubt me, but they did not like boys and girls. But Christ the Lord did, and he took them up in his arms. I said I was sorry it was not so now, but Mamselle says it is all the same. She says that now the mothers can bring their little boys, even cripple hunchbacks like me, to the Lord Christ, and he takes them. But I have no mother to bring me to him. Will you do it, Madame Eloise?' he pleaded wistfully. Quickly she turned her head away. "'It may be,' she said, and her voice sounded huskily. "'It may be your mother would not have been willing to give up her little son to Holy Mother Church.' Christophe looked puzzled. "'Is that the same thing, Mademoiselle? he asked, shrinking back involuntarily from the suggestion, as if the shadow of Brother Toma loomed up before him. "'No, no,' she protested. "'Our Father God does not take the little ones away from their mothers when they bring them unto him for his love and blessing.' He is glad that the mothers should have them to keep until the time when he and his father have need of them up in heaven. Then he comes for them himself, and he is so loving and tender that the mothers, when they look into his face, are willing to let them go. "'Child, are those words you speak true?' There was a curious eagerness in the sharp question. The girl's smile was very sweet, and the tone of assurance in her voice carried conviction with it. "'Dear madame, they are not my words. They are the words of God himself.' "'Ah, let me tell her!' pleaded Christophe, and without waiting for permission, he folded his hands and repeated slowly and reverently, "'Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Madame Eloise, it must be true, for it is just as Mademoiselle says. He does not say, Let them come to the church, but let them come unto me, and—' "'Hark! What is that? 
"'Who comes at this hour?' cried Madame de Rohan, as the sound of horses' hoofs was heard in the avenue. The gate of the court was thrown open, and the rider's voice pompously greeting old Blaise was distinctly audible to the three in the boudoir. "'It is Monsieur my cousin, the habit at you,' murmured Madame hurriedly. Turning to Christophe, she whispered, with a peremptoriness of which she was hardly aware, "'Not a word of all this before Monsieur l'abbé. Boy, remember, if you would not get Mademoiselle into trouble.' Christophe nodded, and his mouth shut with an expressive little snap. Monsieur Alphonse Tetieu, albeit his headquarters and his work were in France, where he was famous as a court preacher, frequently found it needful, on the church's business without doubt, to visit Piedmont, and when there he rarely forgot to pay his devoir to his kinswoman at Castelbrianza. But to Christophe de Beauregard at least, children are wonderfully shrewd readers of the characters of their elders, these visits of Monsieur l'abbé were unwelcome. The cripple looked enviously now after his governess, who, at a sign from Madame de Rohan, was making her escape from the room by a side door. Azarol was afraid of the Abbé Tetieu. True, she had only seen him once, but the impression he had then made upon her she was not likely to forget. There had been no warning on that former occasion of the priest's arrival. He had come at the end of a glorious day in the late autumn. Tempted by the unusual sultriness of the evening, the trio at the castle had been lingering later than their wont in the sweet-scented court enjoying the magnificence of the sunset glow. At Madame's request, Azarel had been singing to them first one, then another, of the gay little French chansons she had learned from her mother in the bygone days. And so it had happened that none of the party had been aware of the approach of Monsieur Labbé, who came up the avenue on foot, having given his horse to a groom he had chanced to meet. Even old Blaise, listening also to the music, his hand at his ear, had been for the moment off his guard by the open gate, and Monsieur Tetieu was in the midst of the little group before they knew. Azarol could only too distinctly recall Madame de Rohan's start and look of fear. The next instant, however, she had recovered, and was again her haughty self as she had imperiously signed to Christophe's governess to wheel the invalid's couch back into the hall. And now, on the second coming of the Abbé, it was with the sense of escaping from some vague peril that the young Vaudois hurried up the stairs to her own room, where she locked herself in, and sinking down on a chair tried, but not altogether successfully, to drive from her mind the vision that rose up before her the vision of a bad man's face. His thin lips with their cruel smile, his steel-gray eyes, cold yet cunning, made the abbé's heavy but powerful face one to be remembered as well as feared. When on his former visit the keen glance of the priest had for an instant lighted upon the vaudois stranger, she had known as by intuition that in the sight of this haughty ecclesiastic, Azarol Montu, an accursed vaudois heretic, was a creature to be spurned underfoot, or at best to be degraded to her proper place as the lowest menial of the Castelbrianza establishment. Moreover, Alphonse de Tieu was a friend of Yugon Rorenko, the prior of Lucerna, and the young girl's dread of the two priests was not lessened by a suspicion that both men were secretly feared by the proud mistress of Brianza. Late that night, when the Abbé de Tieu had retired to his room, Jacqueline summoned Azarol to attend upon Madame in her boudoir. "'Sit down, mademoiselle,' said Madame Eloise, her tone somewhat constrained, or so it sounded to the young governess. "'I have just learned from the Abbé news which concerns you.' It seems that the Duke of Savoy, more than a year since, issued a proclamation to the effect that the Vaudois in prison or elsewhere were free to leave the country and go as exiles to Switzerland. Prior Yugon regrets, all too late it would appear, that he did not acquaint you and your brother with this important announcement. He wishes you now to know, however, that it is not yet impossible for Monsieur and Mademoiselle Montu to avail themselves of the Duke Amadeus's edict. Through Monsieur l'Habitatue, passports can be provided and a safe conduct guaranteed. Accordingly, I wish to inform you, mademoiselle, that I shall put no hindrance in the way of your rejoining your people. Was the slow, subdued voice that of caution merely, or was there underneath a touch of unexplained and unexpressed regret? It was hard to say, for the speaker's face was averted. 
I thank you, madame, was the quiet reply. We had heard of the proclamation, that is, my brother Léon had, but we did not intend then to leave the country. We do not now. The elder woman turned and looked keenly into the girl's face. Madame has perhaps forgotten the promise my brother gave to Jules Bourseau? No, as it happened, Madame had not forgotten. Such promises are generally made to be broken when the need be arises, she said lightly. Azarol drew herself more erect. The promise of a vaudois given before God is made to be kept, Madame. The lady's brow contracted suddenly. Do you hold, then, that all promises are sacred? That it is criminal to break a vow, no matter what what it might entail to the one who vowed? she asked her tone hard, her face again averted. Azarol thought a moment. "'I think my father would have said that it is quite right to break a bad promise, but I know full well that he would have said that we, Léon and I, must needs keep our pledged word, inasmuch that there were those who would lose by our gain. Jules Bourseau knew he could trust my father's son to keep faith.' "'And so, altogether against your will, you are forced to stay where you are.' Touched, she hardly knew why, by the question, Azarol drew a step nearer. A year ago, madame, to stay would have been altogether against my will. But everything now is so changed. I love you, madame Eloise, and I love Christophe. You are so kind to me. You never seem to remember that I am but a poor heretic barbette. Even the servants care for me and let me care for them. If it were not that my heart is often sad, almost to breaking, for news of my parents and little Stella, I could be happy, nay, I am happy, at Castelbrianza. You have made it home to me, madame." Madame de Rohan had covered her face with her hands while the girl was speaking, and now the hot tears fell and trickled slowly through her fingers. "'I weep, but it is for very gladness,' she said brokenly. "'Child, child, have you been sent here to save a soul from a life—nay, a death, rather, of despair?' Azarel was now on her knees beside her. "'Ah, madame, you are so lonely, so terribly lonely, and so sad. But every day I pray to the good God to comfort you, and—' "'You pray for me?' the other repeated drearily. "'I never pray for myself, I am afraid.' "'Afraid of the good God? Afraid of the Father, who loved us so much that he gave up his Son, even to the death, that we might be brought back to the shelter of the everlasting arms? Afraid of the loving Father, who cares with a tender-hearted pity for those of his children who are burdened and sad? "'Ah, no, no!' cried Azarel vehemently. It is because your church hides the Father and His Son Jesus behind Mary and the saints and the priests and their rites and ceremonies that you do not know the true and loving God. But we, Vaudois, we go straight to God through Jesus Christ our Savior, as the Holy Scriptures command us to do, and He speaks straight to our hearts, and we are comforted. And if we have done wrong, for the blessed Christ's sake He forgives us." To this there came no reply, and a long minute or two of silence passed. At last Madame roused herself, and sitting up said hurriedly, the habitatue has this evening been trying to persuade me to command you to put yourself under his offered protection, but I refused. If you accepted his offer, I told him, it must be of your own free will. So long as you wished to remain, there would be a home for you at Castelbrianza. Azarol's, I thank you, madame, expressed more than the simple words. With an uneasy glance toward the door to make sure it was closely shut, madame whispered, I do not trust monsieur my cousin. Child, hearken, I tell you to beware of him. Until you abjure, he is your enemy, remember that. Beware of him, and of the prior, and of Brother Toma. I may forget, they will never forget, that you are a vaudois." The girl made no reply. At the mention of the prior, and Brother Toma, she had started, and turned a little pale. But it was of her brother she was thinking. If these men were her enemies, were they not Léon's also? she asked herself breathlessly. And who could tell what evil to him they might not try to do with the help of Michel Roussier? 
Aloud, however, she said nothing of this new anxiety, and presently, fearing to intrude longer, she rose to go. Madame de Rohan rose also, for it was getting very late. She was lighting her silver hand-lamp when she caught sight of something lying on her desk which she had well-nigh forgotten. It was a silk purse which she held out to Azerole. Voila, ma chère, your salary as Christophe's governess for the past year. It was careless of me to allow it to be so long overdue. Azerole stood in silent bewilderment. Madame, she stammered at last, I could not take this, indeed I could not. It is kind on your part, kind beyond words, to give me, a poor vaudois, shelter and food and clothing, and in all this you have been, ah, so good and generous. You made no agreement, madame, to— The lady silenced her with a gesture almost of entreaty. Yes, yes, I know, but, child, if you love me, let it be so. Then, as Azarel still shrank back distressed, she went on, and now the girl could see that her eyes were darkened by a shadow of pain. If you must have the truth, know then that it is a debt. It is but in payment of a debt my—my my family owes to yours. More bewildered than ever, Azarel knew not what to say, for there was that in her benefactor's face that forbade questioning. She laid her hand on Madame's in mute token of gratitude. Then, as a thought struck her, a wave of color crimsoned her cheeks, and with an exclamation of distress she thrust the purse away. "'I cannot! Nay, then, I cannot! In truth it would not be honorable without telling you that, by paying me this, you are but helping to—to—to send me away from you!' It was Madame Eloise's turn to feel mystified, but only for a moment. She was quick-witted, and the naive simplicity of the girl's embarrassment was curiously transparent. It hardly needed Azarel's hurried words to explain the difficulty. "'Léon has for a year past been saving all his earnings. He keeps them hidden in—I mean, at our trysting place. He says we cannot tell but that the time may come when we shall want the money to buy our freedom before the five years.' As the girl paused abruptly, a little uneasy lest she had already betrayed more than her brother might approve, a faint smile flickered for a moment on Madame de Rohan's lips. With a touch of authority she placed the purse in Azarel's hand. "'Accept it from me,' she said. "'Do with it what you please. Use it, or—' she lowered her voice. "'Or keep it. Only give me fair warning before your hoard amounts to two hundred crowns. Meanwhile your secret is safe with me.' A simple, "'I thank you, madame,' was all Azarel was able to falter, but perhaps the affection and trust that glowed in her eyes spoke for her more eloquently than she imagined, for as she once more turned to leave the room, madame drew her close, and taking the fair face between her hands, touched the girl's forehead with her lips. It was the first kiss, but it was not to be the last. End of chapter 7